Well, good morning. It's great to be with all of you. And uh, your staff, I think I told you last week, your staff's amazing. It, it just continues to be true. There's only one wild card, that Bert the Young guy is kind of a little bit off the rails. But otherwise, everybody else is pretty good. <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to dig in this morning. We're going to continue this, this deep dive into 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Pastor Greg started this last week. And I'd like to pray before we get started, if that's okay. Let's pray together. Lord God, my only prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit's voice would be the loudest voice in the room. Lord, we don't want to hear from a preacher. We want to hear from you. So we pray that you would come around these words and that you would speak into the lives and hearts of your people. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So I had this seminary professor who used to compare belief and faith to an onion. He said, if you cut an onion in half, there's a lot of layers to the onion And eventually you get down to the core of the onion. The question he used to ask us, he said, you know, Christianity, there's definitely core principles. You know, Jesus is Lord and he rose from the dead and the gospel, take him into your life. But then as you go further away from that, there's all kinds of other beliefs that come up around that. He used to ask us, how far can you peel down the onion before you've lost your Christian faith? Before you no longer have a Christian faith? It's a pretty good question. And a difficult one to answer. Now, last week, Pastor Greg told us that Paul's gospel that he preached included these three core things. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. In verse 11, Paul writes, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. When we pick up the story in verse 12, Paul apparently has run into a little bit of a problem about the core of the Christian faith. Look what he writes. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So apparently there was a group of people in the the Corinthian church that decided that this whole idea of the resurrection of the dead was not really something they could buy into. And the correlation was if they couldn't buy into that, they also couldn't buy into the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. For Paul, this was a huge problem. Now, you have to ask yourself, what was going on in Corinth in the Greek world that would keep them from believing in the resurrection of the dead? Well, the worldview of the Greeks was that souls were immortal. They existed eternally somewhere in some well of souls. When a person began their life or started living, a fate or a god or something plucked a soul out and plugged it in or imprisoned it within a person's body. So the soul became this prisoner to the flesh and people lived their lives and eventually when they died, their soul as immortal would just go back to that well of souls, to the shadowy existence in Hades or sometimes it was a little more hopeful. But the Greeks believed that that's what death was like. That's how it was. And so why would you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Makes no sense. In fact, this is not the first time Paul runs into this. He is in Athens on Mars Hill preaching and teaching about the resurrection of the dead to the Areopagus. And in Acts 17, it goes like this. For he has set a day, this is Paul talking, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now look what the Greeks do. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. So I asked myself this week, are there other people today that have a problem with the resurrection? I mean, in the church, are there people that go to church that have a problem with the resurrection? And I started doing some research and found that the BBC 
surveyed 3,000 Christians in England and found out that, that about 33% of them don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in Jesus rising from the dead. And then I looked into further research and found out that in America, in the American church, people that call themselves Christians, 25% of them say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What? This is crazy. Then I started reading some blogs and I realized there's actually pastors writing about this. Pastors that are leading churches writing as if the resurrection didn't happen. There's really not necessary to have it. If we just love God and love our neighbors, we're good. Now, Paul would have a big problem with this, right? In fact, in verse 15, look what he says. He continues. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Paul says, if, if we're preaching the resurrection and it's not really true, we've misrepresented God. We've misrepresented the whole gospel. Now, I'm going to be honest, after looking at that research about the church, I got curious about people out there that don't go to church. I thought, what do they think about the resurrection? Now, I happen to have a practice that I started several years ago. As a professional Christian, I'm always locked in the bubble with all you Christians. Now, you Christians are okay, but you get a little old after a while, you know what I'm saying? So I, I sometimes, on purpose, I want to go hang out where non-Christians are because I believe that God's given me a mission, and I can't fulfill that mission if I'm only hanging out with Christians. So I, on purpose, go to places where non-Christians are so that I can actually befriend them with the hopes that at some point I'll be able to share the gospel with them at some point in their life or have at least a spiritual conversation. So I, I used to think about, where can I go do this? And because I'm a hockey player from Wheaton College days, and because I still build an ice rink in my yard, 75 by 31, every winter, um, I found a group of guys who play hockey right over here in Oakbrook Terrace in the basement of a building, an office building. They've been doing it for 20-some years. One of my old Wheaton College hockey player friends invited me to come. And so now every Tuesday and Thursday at lunch, as many times as I can do it, I go play hockey with these pagan stockbroker guys. And they are pagans, okay? Most of them are lost. Uh, you know, they, they, they're into money. They're into a lot of other things I won't say, share in church, but it, it's, it's quite interesting to be in the locker room with these guys. So, so this past week on Thursday, I went and played hockey. I beat some people up. I whack them with a stick in the name of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And then I asked them, guys, uh, during locker room time today, I know we don't really talk about like the stock market and all kinds of other crazy stuff, but I, I was doing a little research for my sermon Sunday. Would you guys answer me a couple questions? They said, sure, Klein, shoot, shoot. I said, well, I'd like to know what you think happens to you after you die. You know, like when you, let's say you're out there in the hockey rink and you just kind of keel over and died, where do you think you'd go? Well, the one guy who calls himself a reformed Jewish agnostic told me he grew up Jewish, he's married to an Irish Catholic girl, and so now that he's a reformed Jewish agnostic, he said, I think when you die, you just cease to exist. It's over. It's done. Now, I happen to know that his mom died like two weeks ago. So I asked him, how does that sit with you now that your mom just died? He goes, fine. You know, this is the life, you live it, it's over. Another guy named Dave, he's an atheist, grew up atheist. He thinks most of this Christianity stuff is nonsense. But he told me that he'd be fishing after he dies. I said, really, Dave? How, how do you figure that? He goes, well, I like fishing, and I figure there's some kind of everlasting life, and since I like fishing, I figure I get to go fish. 
Okay. Interesting perspective. The, the guy who grew up Jehovah's Witness, he started quoting all kinds of Jehovah's Witnesses verses at me and telling me about the rain we're going to have on earth here and all this stuff. And this conversation went on for half an hour, back and forth, round and round. It was crazy. It was crazy. These guys were totally telling me. And when I asked them the second question, I said, so guys, what do you think about Jesus rising from the dead in the third day? Like the, the Reformed Jewish agnostic said, I, I don't think it really means anything to me. The atheist said, it's nonsense. Jehovah's Witness guy said, well, I've heard about that, but I don't think it really means a whole lot. Whoa. So apparently, there's a bunch of people in our world that don't believe in the resurrection. And they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This was kind of a revelation. Now, verse 15 for Paul becomes kind of this fulcrum for these verses. So I'm going to put up the, the parts on both sides. Notice that Paul is so worked up about this that he starts talking about it's useless, your preaching is futile, your faith is no good, you're still in your sins. If, people have, if there's no resurrection, we've fallen asleep, those people are all lost in Christ, they're, just, they're gone. We might as well all go home and stop doing church altogether. Let's just give it up. Now, there was one last conversation I had Thursday. A guy named Jeremy. Jeremy's a 25-year-old firefighter in Oakbrook Terrace. Jeremy has got tattoos upon tattoos. In fact, he misses hockey sometimes because he has another tattoo appointment to get more tattoos. I can't imagine, but hey, whatever. Um, Jeremy is a dark, dark, dark kid. I talk to him a lot. Um, I've run into him many times, physically speaking, on the hockey floor. Uh, so I went up to Jeremy. He was in the gym by himself after the locker room discussion. And I went out and said, hey, Jeremy, I'm glad you're still here. I just want to ask you, you know, I'm doing this little research project for my sermon Sunday, and I just wonder if you'd kind of be willing to answer a couple questions. He said, sure, you know, yeah, okay. I said, Jeremy, what do you think happens to you after you die? He said, well, I just kind of recycle you know, my soul goes somewhere and then eventually I come back as somebody else. I'm like, oh, reincarnation. Yeah, that, that's how it works. I said, okay, well, Jeremy, let me ask you another question. What do you think about Jesus rising from the dead after three days? Does that mean anything to you? He paused a long time. He got a weird look on his face. And he said, I've never really heard that. I, I don't know what that means. I, I've never really heard it put that way. He said, I believe in God. And I believe you can worship God not going to church. I don't really go to church. And I believe you can worship. I said, Jeremy, I, I do too. You can worship God anywhere. But what about this resurrection thing? He goes, yeah, it doesn't really mean to me. He said, why, why would I want to believe in that? Like, why do I need to know that? Why does it matter? And I thought, man, that's perfect. Because as I was reading Paul and thinking about the futility of my faith, there's no, no re resurrection. I was thinking, why does it matter? Like, could we answer Jeremy's question? Could you? If you were standing in the gym with Jeremy and he asked you this question, what would you say? Would you have an answer? So I thought this morning we'd spend the rest of the time kind of thinking about this together. Why in the world is Paul so upset about the resurrection? Well, first of all, you have to understand that the reason, one of the reasons Paul's upset about the resurrection is he doesn't agree with the Greeks and how people are put together. Paul knows as a good Hebrew Pharisee trained guy that people have a beginning, that their body, their soul, and their spirit all begin in their mother's wombs when they're knit together fearfully 
and wonderfully. So every one of us had a beginning, and we're all uniquely made with unique souls, unique spirits, unique bodies, right? So Paul knew this. He also knew that the body, soul, and spirit, that the soul wasn't in prison inside the body trying to escape, but that life included all three of these parts. And that the body, whatever happened to the body happened to the soul and the spirit. Whatever happened to the soul happened to the spirit and the body. Whatever happened to the spirit happened to the soul and the body. You get the idea, right? They were interconnected, like almost like there was a, a rope between them, holding them together. Paul knew this. Paul also knew that when God in Genesis breathed into man with his breath, with his wind, the breath of life, that God had actually lit a flame inside of every human being that longed to be connected to their God. So when Adam and Eve were first made and God breathed into them the breath of life, Watchman Nee, the Chinese theologian, says that literally a flame was lit in us that longed to be connected to God. And that flame allowed Adam and Eve to commune with God and to hear from God and to walk with God in the garden. And then you know what happens, right? The enemy of God comes in and he says, oh, you don't want to live this life. There's a better life. You know, God had said to Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden because there's certain things that I'm kind of reserved to know and certain things you're supposed to know. And so it's okay. Just trust me. Walk with me. It's going to be cool. I'll take care of those things and you take care of the other things. And we'll just kind of have this amazing dynamic thing. We commune together and you hear my voice and you listen to me and you turn to me and you trust me. And then the enemy says, no, look at this. God's lying to you. And when Adam and Eve bit from that fruit, the flame inside was snuffed out. And from that point forward, every little baby, no matter how cute they look, that's born into this world, is born with the flame snuffed out. The spirit's still there. It's just that we're spiritually dead. Our ability to connect with God is snuffed out. Now, people try to find their ways back to God all kinds of different ways, right? Those hockey guys, they were giving me all kinds of ways back to God. You can live a good life. You can follow the Ten Commandments. You can work, work, work. You can go to church all the time. You can do surf projects. But Paul knew none of that would work. Paul knew that the only hope for any human whose flame had been snuffed out was for this resurrected Jesus to be taken in. So when Jesus comes and he comes body, soul, and spirit and he dies on the cross and rises to life again, a power, a supernatural power is released into the world so that anybody that takes it in, the flame of God is relit in their spirit. And again, they can commune with God in ways they could never commune with God if that wasn't true. This is why the resurrection is crucial because Christianity is not about Moral codes and doctrines and all this other stuff. I mean, it's all included. It's layers of the onion. But the core is the person of Jesus Christ, the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. He's the one that changes lives. The power released through his resurrection, right? Changes people, right? It's changed us. Paul knew this. Paul knew this. Now, sometimes all these doctrinal things are hard to catch, um, and so I'm going to tell you a story. You know, I used, to be, uh, I used to do a lot of speaking in youth camps and conventions. In fact, this is the most dressed up I've ever been to speak, I think, for a long time. So, so there you go. I did this for you. Um, and uh, I was uh, 
don't know, a few years ago in Canada, at a youth convention in Canada, usually when I go to these youth conventions, the first day I try to ask God to show me kids who might really need some special attention. Because there's hundreds of kids and I'm not going to get to know them all. So the first day of this Canada convention, I met Jerry. Jerry had long red hair hanging down his back. And he was a dude talker. So every, every other word was like, hey, dude, how's it going, dude? Good to see you, dude. I can't wait for the convention, dude. Can't wait to play volleyball, dude. You know, the whole thing. You get it, right? Annoying, but it was, it was exciting. So, so Jerry and I are talking back and forth. And I decide, I better pray for Jerry. This kid's lost. His flame is snuffed out. He needs the resurrection power of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for him. So I start praying for him. The next time I see Jerry, he's on stage at the talent show night. He's got a tennis racket. He's playing some weird heavy metal music over the speakers. He's on his back going back and forth on his back, pretending to be uh, some sort of air band. And I thought from the back, wow, my prayers are really effective. (laughs) Powerful and effective, right? Like, what is going on? (laughs) This kid's more lost than when I didn't pray for him, right? So... So I didn't see Jerry again until Monday morning. I'm on stage and I'm running the open mic time. Now, open mic time as a speaker is, is really terrifying because it means the kids are going to come up and they're going to share whatever they have on their heart to share, which sometimes is really exciting and sometimes is really not exciting. You get the picture. So I'm standing there talking to this girl who's sharing some pretty cool stuff. I look over to see who's next and on the stairs, guess who? Jerry. I'm like, oh Lord, thank you very much. This is going to be awesome. Jerry comes out, gets the microphone, he starts, yo, dude, when I got here, this youth convention was all about my air brand performance. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. Then there's this long pause. I thought maybe something happened. I look over, and Jerry's got a tear running down his face. And then he says this, but somewhere along the weekend, it became all about Jesus. Whoa, God transformed Jerry. He relit the lamp of God. Proverbs calls the spirit the lamp of God within man. He relit it through the resurrection power of Jesus. Whoa, it's amazing to be part of that. I tell you, there's nothing like it. In your Christian faith, if you get to see that moment for someone, right, come alive. Now there's a second reason that's more cosmic reason for why the resurrection is so crucial, why Paul is so worked up. So we're going to look at Colossians, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. <laughs> I don't know, my, my, uh, my, hold on a second. Just stay right there. I'm right here. Oh, hey girls, good to see you. Come on out. These are my volunteers. So we're going to stretch this rope out here, nice and tight, go out all the way over. This rope is time, time. Over there, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the whole thing happens. From that point forward, death and sin reign. This rope could easily represent the brokenness and the chaos that the enemy has sown into the human race. This is, this is us here somewhere, right? Somewhere back here, a couple thousand years, 
Jesus entered the scene. He came in the flesh, took on the brokenness and chaos of the enemy into himself, right? Now it says here in Colossians that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. When this was established, the enemy established the dominion of darkness. And when Jesus went on the cross, here's what he did. He took this brokenness and this sin and this chaos and he, he took it all into himself, so he's on the cross. You know the agony he was going through because he's taken all this into himself, all the brokenness, all the death, all the chaos, all the seeds the enemy has sown. He takes it into himself. Death thinks it's going to win. The enemy thinks he's going to win. We're killing Jesus. Woo, woo, woo. But since God made it a mystery and hid it from the enemy and from the dark forces, they had no idea that when Jesus died with all this inside of him, Death and sin died with him. And when Jesus rose to life again, the things that were meant to be restored and redeemed and made alive rose with him. This is why Paul is so worked up about the resurrection. Because he knows this is the only life-giving power that can change the world and that can change humanity forever. Look what N.T. Wright says. For Paul, the point of the resurrection is not simply that the creator God has done something remarkable for one solitary individual, but that in, in and through the resurrection, the present evil age has been invaded by the age to come. And as a result, the world is a different place and human beings have the possibility to become a different kind of people. So Paul encountered resistance to the resurrection all the way back in Corinth. My question is, even though we believe in the resurrection today, are we still resistant to it in some ways? The Hebrews have a different word for believe than the Greeks. The Greeks' belief was a mental ascent. The Hebrews' belief is called emunah. Emunah is a deep experience that helps you to understand and know deep inside that what you believe is true. It's used all through the Bible to describe God keeping his covenant and how God establishes people's lives through his emunah, his faithfulness. So this morning, as you sit here on this couple days, couple weeks after Resurrection Sunday, what kind of resurrection work does God want to do in you? And are you resisting it? Because if God relit that flame in you years ago, it seems like he wants it to become bigger than a little tiny candle. God wants to create an army of the presence of his resurrection in the world so that wherever we go, this resurrection power is released from our lives. But the only way that happens is if we don't resist the work that God wants to do in us, right? The deep work. So this morning... I appeal to you not to resist the resurrection. What does Jesus want to do in you this week to make that flame burn a little brighter? Why don't you open your hands and let him do it? Say, Jesus, I receive it. I'll take it in. I surrender to your resurrection power, your supernatural resurrection power that is my only hope and the world's only hope. All right, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you. 
Thank you, Lord, for all you endured in order to bring back to life people like us, in order to make all things new. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to have open hands, open hearts, open spirits to the work of your resurrection power in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.